Amen. You may be seated. Well, in our study of the book of Luke, I think it's safe to say that the Pharisees were not big fans of Jesus. I think that's been obvious. And it's been clear primarily because of their continual criticism everything, of everything that Jesus did. Uh, every time that Jesus would eat with somebody, they would criticize him for eating with them. Every time Jesus ate, they would say that he was eating and not fasting enough. And then, of course, they begin to criticize him even when his own disciples begin to pluck grain from a, a grain field and eat it on the Sabbath. So they complained about everything that Jesus did. Now, understand that not all criticism is wrong. Not all of it is bad. Not everybody who criticizes something is doing it out of spite. Um, However, when that's all that somebody does, it's pretty clear that they're not trying to build up. They're instead trying to uh, tear down. And this is precisely what the Pharisees wanted to do with Christ. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They were tired of his fame. In fact, many of the people that once followed them, them now are following Christ. And, and they didn't have the stomach for it. So they wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people to be able to regain that fame for themselves. But it doesn't seem to work. Every time they try to discredit Jesus, more people just keep following Jesus. So they had to come up with plan B. And plan B, at least in its infancy, is seen in Luke chapter 6 and verse 11. There it says, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Spoiler alert, if you're wondering what it meant to do something to Jesus, they're doing something to Jesus as they wanted to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. They begin to plan at that particular point of how to do away with Christ. And so Jesus, of course, he knows what's in the heart of man. He, knows, he knew what they were trying to do. And he also knew that ultimately their plan would be fulfilled. It would come true, not because it was their will, but because it was the will of the Heavenly Father who sent him. His whole purpose of coming was to die for sinners. And so that would be a part of God's will. And he knew it would be fulfilled. So now that he knows for sure that there's, he's not going to be there for very long, his life is going to be taken. He needs to prepare for what's going to happen after he leaves. In other words, he's going to begin this gospel work, but he needs it to continue after he ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, we're celebrating Christmas, my favorite time of the year. I love it. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, the Savior coming into the world. But one thing we have to make sure that we do is not lose sight of why he came into the world. We have to understand that he came into the world to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation through all over the world to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what we find is we, we don't need to forget about that. And so at this particular time of year, we have to really refocus ourselves and to understand what is most important. And so what I want to do this morning, I hope that this passage is going to help us by showing two essential components that Jesus used in his plan to make sure that people hear the gospel throughout the whole known world. Two essential things that he uses. The first is prayer, earnest prayer. Follow along with me, if you will, in verse 12. The Bible says, In those days he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, by this early part of Jesus' ministry, he already had a large group of, of disciples following him. They were learning from him, and then they were teaching, taking his teachings, and they were sharing it with other people. But, but now it's time to choose 12 
uh, out of that larger group of disciples to be his apostles. Now, the word apostle in the Greek just literally means sent out. Uh, so these men are going to be his sent out ones. Their job is to be his official messengers with a specific commission. Their commission was, was to give witness as eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, or life, death, burial, and resurrection. That was going to be how God was going to save the world through this gospel message. And these eyewitnesses were going to be instrumental to that. So understanding the significance of their role, we understand that when Jesus went to choose these men, he had to get it right. You couldn't make a mistake and get, get Bucky over here when really you needed Matthew, all right? You need to make sure you have the right people. So here's what Jesus does to make sure he picks the right ones. He, the night before he chooses, he goes up into a mountain and he begins to pray all night long earnestly to the Father to receive wisdom and choosing the appropriate apostles. Now, it might seem a little bit strange to hear that Jesus needed wisdom and that he was praying to the Father to be able to receive it. This isn't actually the first time we hear that he's been praying. Luke has told us this is the third time he's mentioned Jesus at prayer, which means that it was important to him. And so, again, it seems strange that he would be praying for wisdom because, of course, Jesus is God. We understand that through the whole council, studying the word of God. However, we have to understand that even though, yes, Jesus did exist from eternity's past, he had no beginning, he dwelt uh, in perfect harmony with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit, uh, the Trinity existing with one another, that he, even then, he had all the same attributes that uh, God the Father had. He was omnipresent, he was omnipotent. He had all power. He was omniscient. He knew everything. But when he chose to become a man, uh, those things changed in a sense. In other words, what Jesus did to become fully man like you and I and to identify with us, he took some of those, those characteristics of God, those attributes of God, and he set them aside. He didn't give them up. He didn't cease to be God. But in order to be man, he set them aside, which means that he was no longer actually acting within having all power and all knowledge, which means what he knew he got from the Father. He entrusted himself with the Father in prayer. God, I need to know what to do. I need what direction to be able to go. And so he was in constant, earnest prayer to the Father for direction and helping him to know exactly which way he should move and what he should ultimately do. And so we see this playing out here. And what we shouldn't be surprised about is that when he prays earnestly to the Father, the Father answers him. We, we read this in John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17, 6, when he's speaking specifically of his disciples, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So all 12 of these men that are chosen were the exact men that God had intended for them to be the apostles. Now, it's easy to sit there and go, well, even Judas, I mean, Judas did betray Jesus. And it might mean, well, you know what, 11 out of 12 isn't wrong. They got most of them right. They didn't get him right. But we know through the teaching of the word of God that, yes, God had sovereignly chose Judas as well. Why? Again, for the purpose of Christ dying for the sins of sinners. So this is all a part of God's will, everything that God has. And so here's the, here's the idea. If Jesus, who is the very son of God, he himself is God himself. If he chose as a man to be able to go to God constantly in prayer, to be able to seek direction for this life, then how much more should you and I, who are not God, 
be constantly pursuing God, everything in prayer. When we talk about prayer, one of the verses that I often read for us is found in James chapter four and verse six, which says that God uh, opposes uh, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if you want his help, if you want his direction, if you want his wisdom, humble yourself and ask for it. So prayer is actually the actual posture of what humility looks like. When we humble ourselves and pray, we're saying, God, I don't know, but you do. God, I can't, but you can. So, so prayer is a demonstration of that humility. And when we humble ourselves in prayer, God is eager and willing to be able to help. And so it might, understanding all of this, it might shock us to understand how little or tally, how little amount of time that we actually spend in earnest prayer before God. We know that we ought not to move. We all know ought to do anything apart from his will, but yet we, have, we make all these large decisions in life without praying hardly at all. In other words, people will buy a house, make major business decisions. They'll take their family and move somewhere else. They'll choose a college for their kids. Uh, they'll even get married without hardly even praying about it. Now think about that for a minute. Marriage is till death do us part that's probably a good one to pray about and seek the will of God about. But so many people, again, they don't do it. They just do it. Now, if they do pray, we often pray after the fact, right? Not before we make the decision, but after we make the decision. And this is what we good Christians do. We want God's approval and we want him to bless the decision that we made apart from asking him about it. So God, I made this decision now just to make sure that it's the right thing and bless what I just chose to do. I didn't want you in, in helping me make the decision but I do want you to be able to bless the decision that I ultimately made. I got to be completely transparent with you as I always try to be. And the biggest, largest, painful, greatest mistakes that I've made in my life, I can track back specifically to the decisions that I've made apart from earnestly seeking the will of God through prayer. And you say, why in the world would you go and do that? Well, it's the same reason you do that. Same reasons. I think there's three of them. I think number one is pride. We just have a tendency to think that we know more than what we actually do. Look, you might be a business manager. You might be the top of your class. You might need whatever. And there's a tendency for us to think, hey, I can handle this thing. Can I say this in the most loving way I can as your pastor? No, you can't. You can't handle this thing. The Bible tells us and it reminds us, Jesus does in John chapter 15, verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's not some things, or maybe, maybe we can do some, maybe we can't do it. He says, you can do nothing apart from me, not in a God-honoring way. Uh, number two, uh, we oftentimes don't pray and go to God because, well, uh, because of selfishness, the sin of selfishness. In other words, the reason that I don't go to God and in, 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 in ask is, is, is similar to what people say to me every once in a while as a pastor. They'll come and they'll go, hey, I just want your opinion on something. I want to know what you think about this particular issue. And they'll ask me and I'll say, well, let me answer that the way the word of God answers that and I explain it the way the Bible answers it. And they're like, yeah, kind of snarky. Yeah, I had a feeling that's the way you're going to answer that. You know, and you're like, well, then why did you come to me? What were you supposed, how was I supposed to respond? I'm your pastor, I'm a brother in Christ. How else was I supposed to respond except for the word of God? And I think that that's what people do with God sometimes is they don't wanna pray because I think they already know what God's gonna say. And they know it because God's made it clear in their word and they know it's contrary to what would be best for them. So it's best just not to ask if you don't want the answer. 
Well, the Bible warns us of this kind of thinking in James 4, 17, when it says, to you who knows to do what is right, but do not do it, to you it is accounted sin. In other words, whether we do something with prayer or do something without prayer, if it's against the will of God, we ought not to be doing it. I think there's a third reason as well. I think the third reason, it's not simply pride and selfishness, but it's simply because of doubt. You know, we wonder and we really begin to doubt of whether God really cares enough for us in our particular situation for him to be able to come and to be able to help. I mean, he is pretty busy. He is God. He does have the whole world in his hands. So he's got a lot of stuff to keep spinning and happening. So is he, is he really interested in coming and helping me and guide me even in the small things within my life, as small as they might appear to him? And the answer to that, I think, is found in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Does anybody lack wisdom? Anybody need wisdom in the decisions that you're making, marriage, home, work, whatever it is, you're always looking around. COVID, we've needed wisdom in that we constantly. Have you ever noticed how angry everybody is no matter what you do? You wear a mask, people are angry. You don't wear a mask, people are angry. You stand in line, people are angry. You try to separate, people are angry. You get too close, people rebuke you and tell you you're too close, get away from me, right? This is all, you're living in a world where you can't please everybody. But the idea is we need to desperately know how to make every decision in our life, in the world in which we live. Well, then the question is, is what should we bring to God in prayer? I think the Bible is very clear about that as well. He says, well, first of all, let me finish James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to you. Oftentimes we claim promises in the word of God that don't even apply to us. Here's a promise that applies to you. He says, if you will bring everything to God in prayer, here's one thing he will do 1,000% of the time. If you come earnestly seeking to do the will of God and not your own, and you will come in earnest prayer, God will give you the wisdom that you need to do what you need to do. And he says he'll give it to you generously and he'll do it without reproach. You know what that means? He won't do it as we do with parents about the fourth or fifth question they ask us. And then we begin to go, just leave me alone for a little while. Too many questions, right? And what God does, he says, no, brain, come, come to me. You've got a million requests. I've got a million answers. I've got a million directions. You come to me, you trust me. I love you, I care for you. That's what God calls us to do. He says, without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what is it that we are to bring to God in prayer? Let me answer that biblically again. Uh, Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what do we bring to him? Everything we come to him in God. Let me reword this. I can't do better than what the word of God says, but let this be a principle to all of us, is bring only to God what you want his direction and blessing in. The only thing you want, only if you want God's direction, only if you want God in it and be a part of it and to bless it, Only bring those things in prayer. So if your marriage, you want God involved in his blessing, you better pray. If you're raising your children, you want to see them to come in faith in Jesus Christ, the first and foremost thing you do is get on your knees and you pray and intercede for that child and for their salvation. If you need anything, anything you want God in and be blessed by, we need to be able to encourage or pray to God and include him in every decision to lead us and to give us the knowledge and the wisdom that we need. You know, I 
came to faith in Christ when I was seven years old. And, uh, and I praise God for that. My dad's the one who shared the gospel with me. And, uh, and I came to faith through his witness, his faithful witness. And he had me church, in church my entire life. And through that process, we went to a lot of churches that were very missional. They were just very focused on missions. We sponsored a lot of missionaries. And, um, and, and I got to be honest with you, and this is going to sound bad. I know we've got some of our own M's here today, but don't judge me. Um, they would always get up. They would share what they were doing. And then they always end, even today, even our own M's, missionaries, uh, here at, at Mercy Hill, uh, what they do is they end like this. And you probably already know. Some of you are probably wondering how you can help. Three things you can do. You can pray, you can go, and you can give. Ah, you know it. You, you went to the same church, right? You give. You met the same missionaries. And when I was younger, here's what I thought. Do they really mean the prayer part? Or is this way just to soften us up, to lower the boom of asking for money? Because that sounds really, some of you are laughing because you think this way. So you sit there and go, are they just really asking for prayer? Are they just kind of softening us up because that's the spiritual thing? That, well, most of all, we need prayer. Now hand me the money. Is that what they're kind of doing? And it's funny because as I begin to spend more time on the field and spend more time with missionaries and our own missionaries in the Middle East and Southeast Asia and in South Africa and in Europe, when you sit down and actually go on the field with them and they sit down and they go, will you please pray for us? There is no doubt in the world that they want more than anything else is you to intercede in prayer because they, when they are on the field, they understand that nothing happens apart from trusting fully in God, which is always connected with fervent and earnest prayer to God. And so what I would say is I would ask you this year, some of us are looking for New Year's resolutions. Be people of prayer above all else. Set aside for yourself, you and your spouse, time for prayer, earnest prayer. Make a list. Quit making decisions apart from seeking the wisdom of God. There'd be a lot less counseling if there was a lot more prayer and waiting upon God and seeking for him and asking God, what would you have us to do? And in context here, understand, it's not only in every part of life, but it's in one of the biggest calls that God has given us. And that is to make disciples to the end of the earth. Let us, as we give and as we send, and as some of us even go, let us make sure that what we are doing is we are praying to the Lord of the harvest. We are praying to God to win people and to send people. And we're asking God, God, give us wisdom to how to reach our friends and our our neighbors and the people in our community and the people around the world. God, do something in the midst of this. God uses earnest prayer. Let us earnestly pray. Number two, God uses available people. God uses available people. Now, if it's surprising to you that Jesus called out to the Father for wisdom to know who to choose, it's probably going to come to as a greater surprise of who they actually chose. So let's read in verse 13. And when, and when they came, he called his disciples and he chose from the 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, who's named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bar Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and si uh, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That's very nice to be left off like that, the traitor. 
And so these are the group. Now, we're going to learn more about them as we go. But one thing, you who have already been in church for a little while, maybe knows your Bibles a little bit, these were not the brightest dudes, all right? They, 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 they were not the smartest men. They were not the most well-connected. They were not the most affluent people within their community. In fact, what we find in the word of God is that we find for the most part of these men that um, they, were, uh, they, were, they, they were basically described uh, by those who saw them and who ran into them as uneducated common men. Uneducated common men. That is not... Um, a nice thing, by the way. That's not a compliment. Bro, you are, I just want to let you know, I want to bless you. You're uneducated and common. You're, you're just, I just want to say that. I want to bless you with that. That's not it. If one of my daughters comes home one day and says, Daddy, I finally met the man of my dreams. He's uneducated and so, so common. I love him. I'm probably going to think that something's wrong with her, okay, at that point, and probably try to talk her out of it. And this is not what people usually have high on the list for looking for a spouse. You wouldn't think it would be high on the list of characteristics for people that were going to be entrusted with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ when Christ was gone, to be his spokesperson, to be his hands, and to literally write down and pen down the very word of God. These are not seemingly the people that God would ultimately choose, but he did choose them. He did choose them as the very foundation of what he was going to do in the church. We know that because Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says this. It, it tells us that, they, that, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. We read in Revelation 21. Now, Revelation 21 is when everything is said and done. There's a new heaven and new earth. God has created a new city for his people to be able to dwell. It's called the New Jerusalem. And in describing of that, here's what John says. He says, and, uh, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. He says, so basically, when the church is in heaven with God, he says, at the very foundation of that city, these names, I don't think Judas, but probably his, who, who took over for him, is probably going to, be inscri- is going to be inscribed at the very foundation of that entire city. These men were immensely, immensely significant to the growth of the church and the ministry of what God had for them. Now, here's what we understand. They were influential. God chose them. The question for me is, because in the heart of every believer, every true regenerate believer, they want to be used of God. Amen? They want to be used of God. Some of you are saying no. Uh, I, I don't know what that means. Exactly. I don't know how to compromise. Yes, there's a heart in sitting there saying, God, here I am. I want to be used in some way for the glory of God. God, use me. So when we find this, we think, why did God choose them? Why did God specifically choose these particular men? And, and, and I got to be honest with you. When, when you look at it once again, uh, there's no way that he would have chosen them the same way that we did when we chose kids on the, uh, on, on the, uh, on the uh, kickball field when we were little. Do you remember that? Uh, we were like, everybody line up. And then you begin to pick what? Strong, biggest, strongest first. You begin to pick and you work all the way down to Mike, right? That's basically what you do. Some of you are laughing, but some of you still have the pains of being the last one picked. The last person is like, okay, I'll take Mike. I'm like, dude, I'm the only one left. Of course, I'm the one you're going to pick, right? And so, so biggest, strongest, smallest, weakest, Jesus seems to do just the opposite of what we normally do. He takes the, the weakest and he takes the least of these. And this seems surprising until you read the whole word of God, even in the Old Testament. This seems not to be surprising. This seems to be consistent with what God does. When we look into the Old Testament, even the giants of the faith, remember Abraham. Abraham is literally known as father of faith, father of faith. 
And when you look at him, and yes, it took a great deal of faith of, of Abraham to be called out of his own land and to be able to go to a land that God was going to lead him to. We, we get all that. But when you look at his life, there were times that it didn't seem like there's any faith at all. Like the time, for example, when he's, when he's in Egypt and he tells his wife, hey, if the Pharaoh asks, tell me that you're my sister and not my wife. I don't want him to kill me. Thanks, sis right? And so he actually does take her, and without God supernaturally intervening, guess what ends up happening? Uh, if, if, if that doesn't happen, he's in big trouble. So we understand that, that he's a man of faith, but sometimes not faith. So when you look at him, and if you're choosing the father of faith, from a worldly perspective, we think bad choice. When we think of Moses, think of Moses for a minute. His job was to be set apart as, a, as the mouthpiece for God to speak on behalf of God, but unfortunately, he has a speech impediment. He doesn't speak well. Again, from a human perspective, bad choice. Are you with me? Uh, Third one would be Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? Remember the mighty man of valor? Uh, And I don't know if that was supposed to be a joke or not because when the angel of the Lord came to him, he chose him to be able to lead his people against the Midianites and the defeat of the Midianites. The problem is the guy he's asking to lead is so scared of the Midianites that he's threshing at the wine press. Now you say, "What, what deal is that? Well, the wine press was down in a valley. Where he was supposed to be was up on a hill. Up on the hill is where you thresh wheat. You throw it up in the air, and all of a sudden the wind on the top of the hill blows away the chaff. The rest of the grain falls down. That is productive. He's down threshing the wheat in the valley where there is no wind. So when he throws up the wheat and the chaff, guess where it all comes down? It all comes down in the beginning. People are like, dude, this doesn't make sense. I know, I'm scared. Then when the angel comes and says, Gideon, Mighty man of valor. I don't know if that's a joke or what he's trying to do or future hope of what this man is going to be, but it just seems to be a bad choice. Now, all of this seems to be a bad choice, but it is the perfect choice for God, and it seems the way that he is consistent of choosing people to do his work. You say, why is that? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27, It says, for consider yourselves, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you know why he uses these broken things and broken people? So that when they do extraordinary things by the power of God and obedience to God, and everybody looks at them, they're like, hey, I can't be. There's no way. We knew these people. We know their failures. We know who they are. There's no way they could have produced this thing. And that individual, that broken individual says, spot on, God did it all. And God alone gets the glory. And so this is why God uses and tends to be able to use. And I think it's interesting. Oftentimes, anytime that we ask people, hey, do you mind serving in this way? Or would you be willing to do this? All, out comes all the excuses, right? We, we have them all down. Dude, you don't want me. Uh-uh. There's no way I could do it. I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm not capable. I'm not smart enough. I, I don't have all of these things that I really need to be able to have to be able to pull that off. And what they think they're doing is they think that they're building up a, all, the, all the evidence for a case for them not being the ones that God would choose for the role. 
in all actuality, if they understood the Bible a little bit more, what they're actually doing is they're making a case against themselves by building up evidence of the very reason why they are the right ones to serve to begin with. So if you and I sit back and go, man, I've got too, I'm, I'm too messed up, I've got too many problems, I've got too things, praise God, you're exactly who God wants to use. Now, some of you are not like that. Some of you graduated at the top of your class. Some of you are the CEO of your company. Some of you are the star athlete on the field, even now, at least in your own mind. And you're the star athlete all this time. And some of you, but here's the good news. God can even use you too as long as you don't rely on all of those other things. As long as you come and say, apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. God wants to use people. There's a couple reasons why we have a hard time with this, of accepting this idea of God choosing us. For some people, they just don't like it because the truth is they feel as though uh, that, that God, serving God is somehow is, is less fun, it's less fulfilling. It, 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 they'd rather pursue other things in life. And let me share this from a pastor's heart. I will let you know that you can pursue all the things that the world has and at the very end of it, you're gonna see that it was absolutely worthless. I've had and bought and worked for a brand new Toyota Tacoma. I bought it and it was amazing until three days after somebody smashed the side of it in a parking lot. And all of a sudden I was like, I don't know if I want it anymore. Then when I brought it down to trade in, I figured out nobody else wanted it either. And so I was in big trouble at that point. And so all that excitement that I had in buildup really wasn't lasting at all. But, but, but I will tell you that there are people that God has somehow, even me, been able to use to be able to progress in their walk with Christ, either coming to faith in Christ or maybe growing a little bit in their faith in Christ. And when that has been made known to me and I see that, there is nothing in my life that is more fulfilling that, more fulfilling than that, nothing. And so what we understand is the reason we know it will not be more fulfilling is because of how God has created us. He not only created us in his image, but he recreated us, he regenerated us. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, he regenerated, regenerated our hearts. And we read in Ephesians chapter two and verse 10 that he created us in Christ Jesus for good works. So you can pursue and say, well, I don't want to be a part of this being used of God, the service of God. But the truth is, if you're in Jesus Christ, you've been created to for such service, which means if you don't seek to fulfill what God has created you in, you will never be satisfied. You will never be fulfilled. There's a second reason why I think that many people really aren't serving in some capacity. And I think part of that is because they feel so sinful, so weak, so selfish, and so inept to be used by God. Sometimes, you know what it is? Sometimes it's mistakes that we've made in our life in the past. Sometimes it's sin that we've ultimately committed, things that we've done. And we look back and look, I've got the same things in my life from 20 or 30 years ago where I can look back and I think to myself in my life, God, I ruined it. That back then is gonna keep me from being able to be used of you. And the devil loves to be able to play that game all the time. And he loves to be able to discourage and make you think that you're not going, you're broken, so therefore God can't ultimately use you. Let me, let me give you a quick story. This is a parable from India. And it says this, it says, a water bearer in India had two large pots, both hung on the ends of the pole, which he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water. At the end of the long walk from the stream to the house, the cracked pot always arrived half full. The poor cracked pot was ashamed of its own imperfection. 
the, uh, and, and miserable that it, was, that it was able to accomplish only half of what it had been made to do. After two years of what it perceived to be a bitter failure, it, it spoke to the water bearer one day by the stream. I'm ashamed of myself and I want to apologize to you. I have been able to deliver only half my load because this crack in my side causes water to leak out, out all over, uh, uh, all the way back to your house. Because of my flaws, you have to do all this work and you don't get full value from your efforts. The bearer said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on the side of the path, on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? That's because I have always known about your flaw. And I planted flower seeds on the side of the path. And every day when we walk back, you've watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate the table. Without you being just the way you are, there would not be the beauty to, to grace my house. Thank you, God. You do not need to be perfect for God to use you. We all want to be useful. We want our lives to count for something. We just have to be available. Here to God, here I am. Use me should be our prayer. I pray, I remember as a young man coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This is gonna sound weird and this might explain some things. But when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I really wanted to preach the word of God. And so when I was seven years old, I began to sit back and I began to line up all the teddy bears that I had in the kitchen. And I began to preach to them the word of God. And the only thing I knew to preach was basically the story that I heard from my dad or the story that I heard, uh, you know, from, from Sunday school. And from that time on, the thing that really, really has driven me is, God, I just want to be used for your glory in some way, shape, or form. And that is not a desire, I think, that is reserved for pastors alone. I believe for every regenerate born-again believer, they just want their life to count for the kingdom. They want their life to count. And it's not just in full-time ministry. It's, it's in your very home. You, you wanna be a husband that edifies and builds up your wife and your kids. You wanna be a wife that edifies and encourages your husband and the word and the things of God. You, you wanna be able to raise up the kids that you have to let them know God. You want them to, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You wanna be a witness to those that are at your work. You wanna be even a part of this whole global plan of God in some way, shape, or form. Somehow using your business or your efforts or your prayers or something, sitting back and saying, God, just use me. What I pray for 2021, and by the way, there's no promise that 2021 is any better than 2020, all right? There's just no promising right now. And I don't mean to be the joy kill. I'm just trying to state the obvious, all right? There's no promise of that. But here's one of the things that I've found. I've found is God's people focus more on what's wrong than really why they're here. And when they forget about the mission that God has for them and they focus on everything that's going around them, they are just not full of joy. They are not right. They are completely off emotionally and spiritually. But in the midst of all that, when none of it changes, when they begin to commit themselves in prayer for the salvation of the people around the world, and when they sit back and they say, God, here I am, just use me. It's not much. I don't know what I can do, but will you just use me? God will answer the pra that prayer and he'll use you for his glory. 
So for 2021, I know a lot of you are looking for a word or a phrase, or you're looking for some type of something to cling to. Maybe it's your theme for the year. How about pray and be used by God? How about sitting back and sitting there and saying, you know, I'm going to be, I am going to be earnest in prayer and I am going to be an available person for the glory of God. That's what I want to happen. And listen, remember, we're not doing this to somehow earn right standing for God. We're not going to sit there and go, I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to do a lot so that God's going to love me. No, no, this is from all of that. This is from his acceptance. This is from him saving for us from our sins. This is from him him making us his child and give us all the blessings that comes for a believer in Jesus Christ. It is just a response to what God has already done. We sit back and say, God, I want to saturate everything in prayer. And I want to be available for your glory to do as you call me to do. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we've had together. We pray now in the name of Jesus that you would move our hearts. God, that there will be some here that perhaps will come to faith for the very first time. They'll cry out for mercy to you. God, they can call out right now and say, God, save my soul, and you will do it. God, I pray for the rest who sit back and go, we have spent so little time in prayer. God, I I don't want to do anything. If you're not in it, I don't want to do with it. The only way I know to do is to be able to invite you in and have you lead my entire life through prayer. Let us make no decisions, God, apart from prayer in you, saturated prayer, earnest prayer in you. And God, help us each day to take every opportunity in our homes and our work and everywhere else just to be sensitive to the needs around us. Let us do good as we possibly can. Let our good works be seen before men so that the people will praise our Father who is in heaven. God, let this year be a year that we just make ourselves available to you to be used by you. We love you in your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand and I'm gonna, I'll be down here if you wanna come and pray with me. If you wanna know more about Christ, more about the gospel.